I'll keep that in mind, Marson. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeff, as Martin pointed out. Thank you, Martin. Um, welcome back from break. For those of you that went away, it's wonderful to see people back. Um, I guess my prayer for this morning is that as we have the gift of the, the kids' program that goes on downstairs, which creates the space for us to hear God's word, that God's word will infiltrate our minds and hearts this morning, and as Foxy speaks later on, that his messages will resonate with people. So my prayer is that God, God's word will be heard. This morning I'll be reading uh, from Genesis, uh, Genesis 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And now we're going to move to 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 4, 1 to 6. Should be headed, Treasures in Jars of Clay. <clears throat> Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Good morning, Camaray. Very good to see you. My name's Adrian. Everyone calls me Foxy. So that's who this person is at the front right now. Uh, we are getting into 2 Corinthians 4 uh, and for the series. Uh, and if you want to follow along, there are some places to take notes on the back of your bulletin. But um, I wonder, uh, has anyone watched the Welcome to Wrexham documentary? Mm, it's good. It's a really good... It's on Netflix if you... Hang on, wait. Disney Plus. Don't go to Netflix. Disney Plus, if you want to watch it, it's quite a good one. Uh, let me tell you a bit about Welcome to Wrexham. It's a documentary series about a struggling football soccer club in Wales. At the beginning of the documentary, the football team is in a very low league. They've faced huge money problems. Their home stadium is in disarray. It looks like, it's, like a bomb's gone off there. The Wrexham football team is weak. They are unattractive. They lack fans and they lack followers. And I think it's fair to say they have lost heart. But enter two Hollywood stars, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, who no one really has heard of. But <laughs> they buy the club and they bring in 
Hollywood fame, they bring in Hollywood money, they update the stadium, they buy up star managers and star players, and with all this money and celebrity power, the Wrexham Football Club is once again popular, and their jerseys are worn in the town, and the fan base grows, and I'm not joking, it's like the city revives. Uh, it's often the way the world works, make things look good, sound good, find a celebrity to back you, invest lots of money, and you can turn things around. Now, I think it might be tempting at times to want to apply that principle to our church. You know, invite guest speakers who are famous Christians. Carefully curate our messages so that they don't offend. Make things look good. Make things sound good to the culture around us, and we'll grow. It is pretty tempting, and I say it's pretty tempting because many churches have done it in the past, including the ancient church in Corinth. They loved things that looked good and sounded good, and they were tempted to follow leaders who were skilled and well-trained in speaking, leaders who were abundant in their spiritual outward gifts, leaders who I guess in some ways were famous, like Ryan Reynolds. They were tempted to distance themselves from anything weak, anything foolish in the eyes of the world, including the cross of Christ and the Apostle Paul who preached and lived this message. But in 2 Corinthians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, he is at his most passionate. He writes in chapter 6, he has opened his heart wide to them and then he calls them, open your heart wide to me. He urges through tears for the Corinthians to follow him, to come back to him, to his message and his pattern of life. Both are things which were far from impressive, things that looked very weak. So over the next four weeks, we're going to zoom in on 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, and these chapters paint a picture of authentic gospel ministry. Now when I say gospel ministry, I'm not referring to ministers, paid staff, I'm referring to anyone who serves another for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so these chapters are for all of us, and they will teach us that authentic gospel ministry may look weak, but is in actual fact very powerful. And like Marty said at the beginning, it's a very important word for us, because it's not hard to think that the gospel is weak, the world around us is opposed to Jesus Christ, and even here at Cameroon 9am, church can be slow and it can be painful. There can sometimes be little growth and even sometimes decline. It can lead us to asking, is the gospel weak? Are we on the losing team? Which may lead us wanting to give up or shrink back. But in today's passage, Paul writes, we do not lose heart. And then gives some reasons why he does not lose heart. And, you know, because I've started with a football illustration, we're going to go with that today. I want to imagine that we are a team... We've played, say, about a quarter of football, uh, and it's been a hard quarter. We're losing badly. We're kind of unsure of our tactics. We're a bit overwhelmed by our opposition, and quite frankly, we're thinking about changing sides. And so we're huddled together on the siding line, and we have lost heart. Our shoulders are slumped, our movement is slow, and our boldness to fight doesn't exist. And then in comes Apostle Paul the coach, or I should say, and then God speaks, 2 Corinthians 4. What does he say to fire us back up? Verse 1, therefore, 
Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we did not lose heart. Paul understands he's been given an incredible ministry. If you go to the end of chapter 3, you can learn more about this ministry. It is contrasted with what ministry was like under Moses and the law, the old covenant. The law, you want to think something, Ten Commandments, something like that. It was glorious, but its end point was condemnation and death, as no one could keep it. In contrast, in chapter 3, Paul's new covenant ministry is the ministry of the Spirit, where the law led to death, the Spirit leads to life and righteousness. Where the law was temporary, the Spirit is forever. Where the law was glorious, the ministry sharing about Jesus surpassed its glory. The ministry Paul was given is beautifully captured in 3.18. It'll come up on the screen. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. Now, John Newton, the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace, wrote about this verse. In ourselves, we are all darkness, confusion, and misery. But in him, Jesus, there is a sufficiency of wisdom, grace, and peace to suit all our wants. May we ever behold his glory in the glass of the gospel, till we are changed at the image from glory to glory by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the ministry that we share in as we teach about Jesus Christ. We behold the glory of God in Jesus so that we are changed forever. It is spirit-filled, glorious, Jesus-centered, transformative. Now, for you and me, I take it, including myself, we take this kind of ministry for granted. But for the Apostle Paul, who lived a time of his life as a Jew under the law, this ministry was worth living for and dying for. And so he could write, we do not lose heart because there's nothing more precious, nothing more beautiful, nothing, nothing more needed than the ministry concerning Jesus Christ. But that's not all. This glorious, spirit-filled ministry came through, verse 1, God's mercy. I reckon it's pretty easy to miss that when you first read this passage. So often we connect God's mercy, his grace, his compassion to the forgiveness we receive through Jesus Christ. But do you notice what Paul is doing here? He's not talking about his salvation. He's talking about his task. The task of preaching Jesus has come through God's mercy. I reckon this is a game changer. Sometimes I think of ministry, of serving others for the sake of Jesus, as something I have to do. It's a job. It's a task. And that's true. All Christians are called to serve each other. But here, Paul changes the game ever so slightly with profound effects. Ministry is through the mercy of God. Ministry, serving one another, is a gift from God. Ministry is a gift to the undeserving. It's a gift from God that you and I can be involved in this ministry. Gary Miller, a Christian up in Queensland, writes this, You're doing what you do by the mercy of God. You go to work in the morning to interact with all kinds of people, who aren't yet Christian, by the mercy of God. You help with the kids and youth ministry in church, by the mercy of God. You got a chance to speak into someone's life yesterday, by the mercy of God. And so it goes on. We have these opportunities by the mercy of God. The list could go on. You're a warden. You're on parish council. You're serving morning tea this morning. You're volunteering for creche. You're leading the family spot. You're leading the Bible study. You're playing in the band. You're teaching scripture. You're a parent teaching your child at home. All these jobs need to be done, 
that these jobs don't start with us, as if we deserve to do them. They start with God's mercy, that he would be good enough, that he would be merciful enough to give you this glorious ministry of the Spirit. Paul writes, verse 1, Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Okay, let's go back to thinking we're in a team. We're on the sidelines. It's now half-time-ish. And we're back in the huddle and our spirits, they're slightly raised. We've just been told we're part of the best game in the world. They get rugby being played in heaven. We're part of this ministry. But, you know, we're still feeling a little lacking in confidence. We're not sure of our tactics. And so we're kind of holding back. But in verse 2, Paul outlines his strategy. Verse 2, I'll read it again. Rather... We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul does not lose heart and is bold because he has nothing to hide before God or before anyone else. This was not true for every teacher of God's word. 2 verse 17, Paul writes, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. This is the picture of a marketplace where people are trying to sell their wares for profit, using any means possible, doing shady deals, talking up their products beyond what they're capable of. And so these preachers who peddle the word of God, maybe they're watering down the truth to suit what people wanted to hear. Or maybe they avoid teaching the tricky stuff to avoid ruffling feathers. Or possibly they act like the devil and actively deceive ready to do anything to win people over. Maybe they did this to gain a following, to earn people's praise and earn a financial reward. The thing is, if you employ sneaky tactics or if you lie in order to win people over, there'll be this constant fear hanging over your head. What if you found out? What, if, what will happen to your following? But Paul has no fear of this, and so he does not lose heart because he has renounced shameful and secret ways, and instead, he sets forth the truth plainly. Truth-telling was a mark of Paul's ministry. It's often emphasised in 2 Corinthians. In 6-7, his ministry is marked by truthful speech. In 7-14, he claims that everything he said was true. Nothing can be said against him because he set forth the truth plainly. He set forth the truth that Jesus is Lord. He set forth the truth that Jesus is the only way to access the Father. He set forth the truth that our lives must come under Jesus Christ and the truth that following Jesus, while glorious, will be costly and lead to suffering. Paul set forth the truth plainly. He had nothing to hide. He trusts in the truth. And so he does not lose heart. He does not lose heart. So let's go back and imagine we're in our huddle. We've now played another quarter of the game and you have, you're stuck with Paul's tactic, setting forth the truth plainly, but your confidence, well, it's starting to fade again because there, there's a problem. The tactic doesn't seem to be working. You might see some victories over here and some victories over there, but overall, you're still losing and you're losing badly. And so you start thinking, maybe there's something wrong with Paul. Maybe there's something wrong with his ministry. And I kind of think something like this might have happened in Corinth. Just imagine for a moment there's Paul speaking a truthful message which he claims has power to bring the spiritually dead to life. 
But then on the other hand, there's a whole lot of people who continue to reject Jesus. What's going on? Maybe Paul's ministry is not the real deal. Maybe you should jump ship and follow another preacher who is at least getting some followers. But now Paul clarifies, it's not that his method is wrong, but rather people are still perishing because a spiritual battle is taking place. Verse 3 and 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age, in verse 4, is referring to Satan, God's enemy, the deceiver. In the history of church, some have debated this because they couldn't get their heads around Satan being called God. But the truth that Paul is highlighting is that Satan has power. For sure, it's limited by God and limited to this age, but Satan does have power in this age, in this time before Jesus Christ returns. Now, in our world, where we struggle with talking about things that aren't seen, or in our physical world, where we neglect the spiritual, it can feel uncomfortable to talk about Satan. But God's number one enemy is still at work in this world. I don't know if I can tell you the mechanics of how he works, but I know he works against God through the power of lies and deception. In verse 4, he blinds the minds. He attacks the mind, which shows us how important what you think is. It shows us what we feed our minds really matters, especially what we think of Jesus Christ. Again in verse 4, they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan attacks the mind, especially what we think of the Lord Jesus. It's interesting, I reckon. I'm, I'm sure Satan can tempt people away by convincing them that selfish sin is more enjoyable than serving God. I'm sure that Satan can work by distracting people with worldly pleasures and worldly tasks. But Satan's number one target is what we think of Jesus. Because if we don't look at the crucified Christ and see the glory of God, which is kind of what happened for the Corinthians, if we don't see Jesus as the risen Lord with all authority who will return, then everything comes undone. Satan directly attacks blinding minds at who Jesus is. See, the problem with Paul's ministry isn't Paul's method. It's not speaking the truth plainly. The problem is the spiritual world we live in. Sometimes we forget this. Sometimes we think we can kind of just argue people into the kingdom, you know, just lay it forth logically and people will be convinced. We forget there is a spiritual dimension. And so then we just want to give up on speaking the truth plainly. But there's a spiritual battle. So we don't lose heart. And we keep going, speaking the truth that Jesus is Lord. Which leads us to our last point. So, team huddle. One last time. Final quarter. We're confident in our tactics. And even though it's good to know your enemy, the enemy seems pretty hard to beat. I mean, look at us. We're a minority in a big secular world with a message that really is viewed as foolish. What hope do we have against the God of this age? The good news is winning the battle is not about us. Verse 5, for what we preach 
is not ourselves. Isn't that the best news you've heard today? What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And the good news is the message we preach, Jesus is Lord, is powerful. I want you to imagine for a moment time before the world existed. A big black emptiness, a void. There's nothing but darkness. There's nothing but nothingness. But into this emptiness, God speaks. He says, let there be light, and there was light. A light so large, a light so powerful that everything is lit up. Where there was once darkness, there is light. Light as bright and as powerful as the sun. Now get this. The same God who spoke light into this world shines light into our hearts, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Your words about the Lord Jesus had the same creative power as God's word did in creating the world. You just want to let that sink in one more time? Your words about the Lord Jesus have the same creative power as God's word did in creating the world. Yes, the God of this age may have blinded the eyes of believers, unbelievers, but the news about Jesus is like sun in a dark world. It lights up darkened hearts. It uncovers the truth that we need to hear. Stating the truth plainly that Jesus is Lord has immense power. I've heard that the gospel is like a stick of dynamite that explodes into our lives, but that's not it. The news about Jesus has the power of the sun. Isn't that what every supervillain wants to control? To direct the power of the sun for their own means? But here, spirit-filled, Jesus-centered message has the power of the sun to uncover blind minds. We do not lose heart because we know this powerful message. And I've seen it, and I know many of you have seen it too. You've seen this power play out over and over again. I've seen it where year nine students are forced to visit youth group for a school assignment. And then they end up staying for years and they're now serving as leaders at evening church. I've seen it at study camps. Students have gone on study camps to cram for exams. They're deeply apathetic towards Christ but they return from a study camp with Jesus as Lord. I've seen long-serving church members who have endured through suffering that almost seems too much to bear, and yet here they remain. How do these things happen? It's not because we preach ourselves. It's because we preach Jesus as Lord, and this message shines light into the darkest heart. And brings, in, and brings life in the glory of the sun. Cameron 9am, I wonder where you're at on the, on the losing heart scale. Maybe you, you do. You feel like giving up. You feel like giving up on serving others for the sake of Jesus. Maybe you're as passionate as ever. Wherever you're at today, we've stood in a huddle. And God's word causes us calls us to not lose heart. We do not lose heart because we receive this ministry through the mercy of God. We did not lose heart because we've got nothing to hide. 
We did not lose heart because we know the battle is spiritual and we did not lose heart because we know the message is powerful. So it's time for us to break from our huddle and to get on with the best work in the world, proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord to each other and to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus, that he is Lord, and that message, with all its implications, has the power to uncover blind eyes and blind minds. Thank you that many of us have received this message and we've seen this power at work in our lives. Please, God, help us not to lose heart in the ministry of serving one another for the sake of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.